Hey, science nerds! Welcome to Beyond the Abstract, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of the coolest cutting-edge basic science research papers in a way that just about anyone can understand. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Beyond the Abstract. I'm very excited to have a wonderful friend and wonderful guest here, Jacob Sterling. Jacob, would you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, the science you do, what you like to do for fun? Sure. Uh, So first of all, thanks, Ellen and Derek, for having me on the podcast. Very excited to be here. Like Ellen and Derek, I am a third year MD-PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania. My particular interest in the lab focuses on the connection between the retina at the back of the eye and the brain, um, looking at shared mechanisms of neurodegeneration. So things that affect your retina and your vision, as well as things that affect the brain and your cognition or your ability to think. In my spare time, I consider myself a part-time rower, bread baker, and always a willing test subject for my boyfriend's culinary creations. (laughs) Jacob, don't you have like four ovens in your house? It's like something absurd, right? (laughs) It is technically three ovens, if we're being exact. It could basically function as the Great British Bake Off baking tent, (laughs) because there's like the steam oven. There's a lot of different settings that you can... There's a lot of different settings, and I've only ever used any of them for two months at a given time. (laughs) The, like, newness of it wears off pretty quickly, and then it's kind of over, and then I discard it and move on to some new tool. Um, I, too, share this problem of, like, having too many ovens. Yeah. You know, like, not knowing when to use them. It's it's really... A big problem I have in my life. <laughs> Having a boyfriend that feeds you. Yeah, champagne problems, I know. <laughs> champagne problems, I know. This coming from me, having also just purchased a new wine mini fridge, so don't we, judge me. <laughs> we choose our own luxuries. <laughs> <laughs> but besides purchasing a new wine fridge, I've also been on vacation, you know, going to wineries and stuff like that. It's been um, pretty nice as anyone who follows me on Instagram (laughs) knows. But what about you guys? Any new like new life updates or anything? Yeah, I feel like you have good reason to go on vacation. I think we all do Mm because we all are starting in our actual official PhD lab. So this was the first official week of me being in my PhD lab. I'm studying skin microbiome. Yeah, I technically haven't really started yet. That's <laughs> next Monday. So I'm just like bumming around right now, drinking wine. Yeah, unfortunately for me, uh, no vacation time right now, but I will be taking some much needed rest later on for uh, Hanukkah visiting my boyfriend's family. So looking forward to that vacation. And also we're all going to Rochester this weekend. <gasps> yeah, True. Who's excited? Celebrating Derek's immunofluorescence art. I'm like, you can't see it, but I'm like tossing my hair right now. <laughs> So because Jacob is a neuroscience and neurodegeneration expert, we wanted to invite him here so we could um, talk about neurodegenerative diseases. And today we'll specifically be talking about Parkinson's disease. And we want to look at the role that inflammation of the brain plays in this disease. So I chose the paper this week. The paper is looking at cells that produce inflammation in Parkinson's disease. And the group was looking to see if they can use a drug to target these cells that produce inflammation. 
So I know we throw around the word inflammation a lot all the time. So I mm -hmm. just want to give like a brief definition of it. So a good way to think about inflammation is sort of the body's red alert to other cells that something has gone wrong. Usually the thing that's gone wrong is like tissue damage or mm -hmm. um, some sort of tissue injury. And inflammation is important for normal health because it helps heal something that has gone wrong in the body, but it can also be overactive in disease states. So for example, in Parkinson's disease, the immune system is overactive and you have too much inflammation. Yeah. I feel like a lot of like the really common inflammatory diseases we know are things like rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. A lot of other autoimmune diseases also are associated with a lot of inflammation. Yeah. I, and so I would say also in the case of neurodegeneration and neuroscience in general, we tend to think about inflammation as an age-related process. So the older you get, the more likely you are to have these kind of random events where inflammation turns on, even though it's not necessarily necessary at that moment. So in the case of neuroscience, we really think about it as an age-related process mm. as well. Okay. Yeah. It's just like the body's like red alert signal to be like, oh, something's wrong here. Like, come help me. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So the title of the paper for this week is Block of A1 Astrocyte Conversion by Microglia is Neuroprotective in Models of Parkinson's Disease. And this paper was actually a collaboration of three groups, the Lee, Dawson, and Co. groups, and these scientists are at Johns Hopkins. The paper was published in Nature Medicine in 2018. We love a good collaboration. We do, three groups. And they're all from different disciplines, which is great to see. Like one was oh, like a really? basic chemistry guy because I think he developed the drug. Oh, what, yeah. about, what about the other? I think people? the other two are typically <clears throat> Parkinson's. Yeah, the Dawson lab is one of the biggest Parkinson's labs in the country, working on a number of different therapeutic angles for Parkinson's. We happen, my, in full disclosure, my lab happens to collaborate with them. So I'm obviously very biased in favor of this paper. <laughs> Um, and know Ted and Valina very well. But yeah, the Dawson lab is at the very forefront of Parkinson's disease research. Where, where are they at? Hopkins. Oh, I think I've heard of it. <laughs> so before we get into the paper, I thought it would be important to go over some background on Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So an important thing about Parkinson's disease is there's actually two categories of clinical symptoms one of which is motor symptoms. So the motor symptoms you typically see are tremor, very slow movements that has a name called bradykinesia. And then a lot of patients often have walking and gait difficulties. There's also a class of symptoms that are non-motor. These are problems with sleep cycles, depression, and also a lot of patients have cognitive decline. So these symptoms, they're pretty debilitating, exactly. right? Yeah. We know that Parkinson's is a progressive neurodegenerative disease. And towards the end, these patients have trouble with things just like walking, with brushing their teeth, mm. with eating. With swallowing. Yeah. Mm. And it's really not uncommon for these patients to also have depression, both as a direct effect of the Parkinson's, but also kind of the effect that Parkinson's has psychologically exactly. on their life. Yeah. Do we know what the underlying pathology causing these motor symptoms? Yeah, I think it's fairly clear in terms of the motor symptoms. The motor symptoms are usually caused by loss of neurons that produce a neurotransmitter called dopamine. So the name dopamine might be familiar. Just as a reminder, a neurotransmitter is a way for neurons to communicate with each other. And dopamine's like the happy drug, right? Yeah. <laughs> Right, which ties in, some people think, to your whole idea behind depression, 
is that the loss of these dopaminergic neurons in multiple pathways mm -hmm. um, can also contribute to degeneration of pathways relating to reward. Mm -hmm. um, so that can also contribute to depression. Mm -hmm. My dopamine's highest when I'm at a winery, <laughs> which will be this weekend. <laughs> Keep those spikes high and frequent. <laughs> So in the paper, an important marker of disease will be this loss of dopamine-producing neurons. Another marker of disease that they look at is something called Lewy bodies. And these are abnormal accumulation of a type of protein that can accumulate in nerve cells. So these proteins kind of clump up within the neurons, and they prevent the neurons from communicating with each other, and they're also associated with death of the neurons. Yeah, it's kind of like if you're like gummying up the sewer system yeah right it's like we've all seen those like really gross photos of plumbers like sticking something down the drain and like coming up with like a ball of hair slash like who knows what else like, really nasty shit right yeah <laughs> this is essentially what these clumps of proteins do it blocks it off and the neurons can just no longer communicate with each other at all exactly the neurons are not happy to be gunked up by these Lewy bodies mm -mm. another important thing about parkinson's disease is that our current treatments are somewhat limited. The current treatment we have now is primarily a dopamine replacement. Although Parkinson's disease has a loss of dopamine as a critical feature, which we've talked about, maybe contributes to some of the mood symptoms, mm -hmm. as well as definitely the motor symptoms. Ultimately, adding in extra dopamine really doesn't solve the problem. Mm -hmm. We haven't replaced the neurons that were lost, mm -hmm. and we haven't affected a lot of the symptoms that people really struggle with. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately any just addition of dopamine is just a band-aid on the problem mm -hmm. you're not actually interacting you're not actually preventing the course of the disease yeah. it's like taking advil for like your broken arm okay it's gonna like stop hurting for a little bit but really what you have to do is reset the bone get a cast right that's actually the perfect analogy right you're not actually doing anything to the disease itself mm -hmm. exactly so a major push in the field is try to address these underlying causes and seeing if you can fix the underlying causes. So in this paper, they think they have a drug that might be able to do just that. Mm. The drug that they're looking at is a GLP-1 receptor activator. So I want to share a couple cool things about GLP-1. When we typically think of this compound, we think of it in terms of regulation of glucose levels in blood. And GLP-1 is actually a target for a lot of diabetes drugs. However, there's receptors for GLP-1 in the brain. And I was just like reading a little bit of background on this paper, and it seems like the chemist who came up with this drug tried to do a diabetes trial, but it wasn't well enough funded. So they collaborated with these neuroscientists and were like, hey, there's receptors in the brain. Let's see if we can get some results. <laughs> oh, that's like super cool. And it makes sense that there's receptors in the brain as well. Yeah. The brain is actually a huge utilizer of glucose. Yeah. It's actually one of the only sources of energy it can use. Yeah. So it makes sense that there's a lot of different molecules that control what and when the brain can use glucose. Right. And so in this particular paper, we're maybe even taking a step beyond that, which is to say, is it possible that this compound, this protein that exists, you know, outside in the rest of the body, outside the brain, maybe has a different effect even in the yeah. brain itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they had a good reason to think this because they're actually two previous clinical trials before this paper was published that showed that drugs that activate this GLP-1 receptor were able to slow the progression of Parkinson's disease symptoms. Oh, really? I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, it's crazy because it's like 
it seems like you might be moving backward because they're going into mouse models right. from clinical trials. But it seems like the reason they're doing this is to really get at those underlying mechanisms that we were talking about before. Right. Well, I'm guessing they don't really know how this drug works. Is that correct? That's totally correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that they saw some sort of benefit using it in a clinical trial, really, you can tell a lot from this. Like, you can see how this drug works, and it'll give you more insight into how Parkinson's is actually causing disease. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's important to also note that when you have these types of human trials where you aren't actually targeting Parkinson's disease, and you happen to notice that some of the patients who have diabetes where you're using GLP-1 and you're seeing an effect, the the effect might actually not be real. And so that's really what they're trying to hone in on here is the question of whether or not this GLP-1 effect is real and worth trying to give to every single person who has Parkinson's disease, not just the diabetics. Totally. So what did they do to the mice with this drug? Yeah, so the first step is to just see if they can see effects in the established mouse models of Parkinson's disease. So they used two pretty well-established mouse models of Parkinson's disease. They allowed the symptoms to develop um, over the course of several months. And then they administered this um, receptor activator drug um, for several months. And in this paper, the way they are monitoring disease progression is first by looking for the presence of the Lewy bodies, those, those abnormal proteins that can gunk up the neurons. They were also looking for dopamine producing neurons in the brain. And then they're also doing a couple of motor tests on the mice. One like, of which... Like how? <laughs> <laughs> These always... These are always are interesting to look into. So one of which is referred to as the pole test. Drum roll. So you take a pole. I hope it's not what it sounds like. <laughs> it is what it sounds like. You take a pole and you place the mouse at the top of the pole. And then you see how long it takes for the mouse to go all the way down the pole. And then you like throw dollar bills at it. And then you down. compare that. You compare it to the speed at which Jennifer Lopez did her dance <laughs> in Hustlers. It's really like who gets like the most 20s at yeah. the end. Yeah, Hustler. actually, if, right. And if you want to do this really in a precise way, you actually need Jennifer Lopez there, there. for it to do trial by trial. Just repeat, repeat, repeat. Right. That's right. why their grant was so big because they had to pay Jennifer Lopez to be there. But it was worth every penny because yeah. she's incredible. Shout out to I can't believe they didn't include her as a co-author. They really just... They really... We should reach out. I think, I think she worked her way into the acknowledgements. Of okay. If you see a J. Lopez, you'll know who it is. <laughs> okay, so getting back to the results. Um, <laughs> unsurprisingly, in the untreated mice, they saw the typical signs of disease, which were increased Lewy bodies, decreased number of neurons that produce dopamine, and also decreased motor function. Now, when they introduced the drug, they tracked for disease progression. And they saw that all three markers of Parkinson's disease were improved. Oh, in mice that got the drug, yeah, they they could stay on the pole longer, <laughs> <laughs> got more twenty. Yeah, <laughs> but also they they just they maintained their neurons and stuff. Yeah, they, like, increased survival. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, right. And also, really critically, they see decreased amounts of these Lewy bodies, which are gunking up the neurons and are mm. thought to actually be the thing that is causing Parkinson's disease. So here, for the first time ever, we're potentially seeing an actual effect on the cause of Parkinson's disease, not just a Band-Aid where we're just giving extra dopamine to try and fix some of the symptoms. Right, because we know that giving dopamine doesn't actually fix the the system, right? Right. So this drug is kind of like Drano. Yeah, removing that gunk, removing Mm -hmm. that hair. Get it out of here. (laughs) 
So do we know how the drug is like doing all of this? So that's the next thing that this paper wanted to look at. They wanted to see if they could figure out the cell types that the drug was targeting. So I thought, Jacob, you could tell us a little bit about the cell types that they look at in the paper. Yeah, so generally speaking, the brain has four different cell types that we like to talk about, and we're going to be particularly focused on three of them here today. Um, So since the field is called neuroscience, I guess we'll start with neurons, (laughs) Um, and they do get a lot of the big press. So we talk about the fact that neurons are dying in Parkinson's disease, and that's really what creates the symptoms that people experience. But neurons are actually outnumbered in the brain by supporting cells. Some people will say by a factor of 10 to 1. So there's a lot of supporting cells in the brain, and they kind of come in three different varieties, if you will. The first one, which I'm just going to mention very briefly, just for completeness sake, is oligodendrocytes. And we're not really going to talk much about them today. The other two that are really critical to this paper and generally to our understanding of neuroinflammation are astrocytes and microglia. And so they are both inflammatory or non-inflammatory cell types that kind of Mm -hmm. support the neurons and help them with their normal functions. Mm -hmm. In particular, microglia are a very, very strong interest when it comes to inflammation because microglia actually originate in their original form. They come from outside the central nervous system. So Mm -hmm. they're not in the brain Mm -hmm. when your body first forms. Mm -hmm. They actually are the same things that are found when you have an infection in your blood or an infection in your lungs. The same types of cells that are there are what microglia come from. So they're actually an inflammatory cell at their heart. Mm -hmm. They're like your best friends, essentially. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's like you two. You guys are my microglia and astrocytes. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm the neuron, by the way. Oh, yeah. We outnumber you. I'm Regina just... George in this situation. Yeah. Let's be clear about that. For anyone who's met Derek, they would know that this is this could not be more true. <laughs> Drag me, Jacob. <laughs> Historically, astrocytes have actually been studied, but only in their function at neurotransmission sites. So basically, they've only been studied as a connection between two neurons. So they facilitate that by recycling neurotransmitter, giving energy like glucose to neurons to help them function. So they do a little bit of the pre-processing for them. But generally, they've only been considered as helpers of neurotransmission, helping neurons to connect to one another and signal to one another. They haven't really been considered in this inflammatory context until very recently. No one puts astrocyte in the corner. Isn't it funny that they're named for stars and everyone's just like, oh, you're just the supporting actress. actress. (laughs) So not Jennifer Lopez, but (laughs) someone else in Hustlers (laughs) that we can't remember. Um, I would just like to say that we also consider Constance Wu a neuron. Yeah, she's a star. Yeah, they're all stars. I'm not going to like. Star is born. (laughs) An astrocyte is born. An astrocyte is born. Derek and I are now singing Shallow, just so you guys know. <laughs> Leave a comment on like our Instagram if you actually want just an entire episode of me and Ellen singing Shallow. We've been prepping a lot and I almost know the words. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, Ellen's also forced to sing the Bradley Cooper part of this song in a much lower register. <laughs> just because Derek can't really get down to those notes. So it's all a matter of compensation. It's more like I'm Lady Gaga and I'm just like the main (laughs) thing. Okay, so getting back to the paper, we've introduced these different cell types. So they actually wanted to isolate the different cell types, the three that we've been talking about, neurons, astrocytes, and microglia, and see how the drug affects these three different cells. And they want to 
do this, I'm guessing, because, like, the brain is, like, super, super complicated. Yeah. A lot's going on. Yeah. I'm crazy, so I know my brain's complicated. <laughs> Essentially, when you give a drug like this, you don't really know what the drug is affecting. And that's why for a really long time, a lot of people just thought the treatment was affecting the neurons. Yeah. But when you can isolate specific cells and put them in a dish and then treat them with the drug, then you can really start dissecting at what is going on at the individual cell type level. Totally. And that's the ultimate goal, like we said, the mechanism. So like Derek said, and also Jacob emphasized, the neurons were always at the forefront. So they first tested the neurons, they added the drug to the neurons, and they saw that this drug actually had no protection from the disease when grown with neurons alone. So they were probably thinking, it's not having an effect on neurons, so maybe let's look at these supporting cells that we've been ignoring too much. And this is this is really surprising. Yeah. Because as Jacob said again and again, the entire time people are thinking that the main problem is neurons. So the fact that this drug had such a large effect in humans, but yet when you're treating neurons, it doesn't do anything. I'm sure that was like shocking. Yeah, yeah. Right. I think it's also really valuable to point out at least for the, you know, for the listeners who aren't actively involved in science, this is all happening in a cell culture dish, right? So these are neurons, they're not in a brain, they're just sitting in a dish, mm-hmm. and you're giving them this drug. Mm-hmm. And as researchers, we typically think that effects are much larger in this case, in a dish, mm-hmm. than they are in a living animal or a human. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. fact that you're seeing no effect in a dish is actually really stunning, right? because yeah. you'd expect to have the biggest effect in a dish and the smallest effect in a human. Totally. Exactly. So in order to narrow down the cell they wanted to study next, they looked at the levels of the drug target in different cell types. Because the drug activates a receptor, they wanted to see what cell types have the highest levels of this receptor. And this is the GLP receptor. Exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the mouse model of Parkinson's disease, they found that this GLP-1 receptor is at its highest levels in microglia cells. So they thought this would be a good cell type to look at um, as the drug target. The fact that the GLP-1 receptor is most strongly expressed on microglia, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact earlier that microglia are inflammatory cells. Their function is to cause inflammation. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully in response to something bad that's going on in their environment, whether that's an infection or an injury of some kind in the brain, but they can also do that when there's no signal for activation. Mm. And so the fact that we see GLP-1 receptor on microglia does suggest that maybe GLP-1 has some role in inflammation. Mm. It actually turns out that this dovetails really nicely with some earlier work from 2017 from the Boris Lab at Stanford. Um, for those of you who really want to look up the paper, it's little low at all 2017 in nature. <laughs> Receipts. Um, <laughs> Show them to me. I don't yeah. So the postdoc there, Shane Littlelow, was actually able to show um, in a generic model of neurodegeneration that microglia release pro-inflammatory signals to astrocytes, which actually mm. cause the astrocytes to transform from this kind of like resting, helpful state into an aggressive pro-inflammatory attack state. And actually they would kill off neurons. And they were able to prevent this transition by blocking those signals that the microglia send to astrocytes. And so if they block that transition of astrocytes from the resting state to this like pro-inflammatory toxic state, then they were actually able to rescue neurons and prevent neurodegeneration. 
So because of this finding about the microglia getting activated and then also causing the astrocytes to become toxic to neurons, they wanted to see if the microglia were being activated in the same way in Parkinson's disease. This group did find that when microglia interact with Lewy bodies, the abnormal proteins we were talking about um, in the disease, the microglia become more activated. And these activated microglia, as they would predict, are producing inflammatory signals. And I'm guessing that since we also know that astrocytes play a role in this inflammatory process, that they probably looked at the astrocytes as well, right? Yeah, exactly. They looked at just that. And they did find that in this disease model, where the microglia were activated, they saw a higher number of these astrocytes that were the toxic killer forms of the astrocytes. So of course, now that they have this nice connection between activated microglia and astrocytes, they wanted to see if their drug could target this mechanism. So when they added the GLP-1 receptor activator to the activated microglia, they were able to find that they could actually reverse the activation of microglia. So that means when they added the drug, the microglia were no longer sending off all of those pro-inflammatory signals. And so that means that when they added the drug, that the astrocytes were also not converting into this toxic form, killing off the neurons. It sounds like this paper had just a lot of really, really cool findings. First of all, using this like Parkinson's model, they found that microglia are activated in this neurodegenerative Parkinson's Mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but that these microglia talk to other cell types, not neurons, in the brain to cause disease. They Mm -hmm. talk to astrocytes. Mm -hmm. And this causes the astrocytes to get like super, super angry and to kind of turn into this form of astrocytes where it's essentially causing the disease, right? And the coolest thing is that they now know that this drug, which showed to be useful in clinical trials, treats Parkinson's by treating another disease process outside of neurons, that it directly inhibits this inflammatory process among between the microglia and the astrocytes. Mm -hmm. Totally. It's expanding the picture besides just neurons. And these like more supporting cells are now more at the forefront of the research because it seems like all of these cell components are important for disease progression. Yeah. I really like this about research because a lot of the time we just think, okay, let's look at this one thing and then study it really, really well, this one pathway, and then we'll start designing drug targets for like different parts of the pathway. This is kind of reverse engineering that. They found a drug that works, which is really difficult because there's so many drugs out there. But they found a drug that works and then they decide to take it back into a mouse and then really figure out this disease process. So we learn more about the Parkinson's pathology from this treatment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I think that's really cool. That is really cool. Right. And I think this gets at kind of why the paper is a big deal. So on one hand, it's incorporating a lot of new information that we have about these supporting cells in the brain, astrocytes and microglia, this kind of cutting edge research that's looking at inflammation and the role of inflammation in neurodegenerative disease. And it also addresses this longstanding question of why is GLP-1 protective in Parkinson's disease? Mm-hmm. Is that a real protection or is it maybe just a Mm -hmm. random signal that you know scientists are accidentally picking up Mm -hmm. and so it addresses this question that's kind of been stick you know stuck around for the past decade or so and then on top of that we also now have a potential new drug that we can bring to market that can actually alter the course of parkinson's disease for the first time as opposed to just 
providing a symptomatic treatment like dopamine. And so that's actually the probably the most exciting component of this. And in fact, the first phase one trials of this drug are currently um, underway in recruiting in Baltimore yeah. with a drug company, Neuroli, that spun off of this project. Oh, cool. You're a light if you want to sponsor us. Hit <laughs> <laughs> <Get> us up. <laughs> We're cheaper than Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> but not that, that much, much cheaper. Yeah. Don't speak for me, Ellen. <laughs> you don't know my rates. <laughs> so yeah, there's super cool things coming down the line. And I like how we're talking about how, yeah, they're progressing to clinical trials, but they're also going back to more of this basic research of trying to understand the mechanism. So it's cool how this paper is kind of on both sides of the fence. And Parkinson's disease is really a pretty common neurodegenerative disease. Yeah, I think it's the second, second most common second after most. Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, it's really, really debilitating and it's a slow progression, mm -hmm. but a lot of these patients end up dying from aspiration pneumonia. Essentially, they lose control of the muscles in their throat mm -hmm. And then they accidentally swallow bacteria from their GI system and they get pneumonia, they get an infection and they die from that. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really sad. Mm -hmm. It's sad for the patient, their family members. And even though we can control some of the symptoms with dopamine, dopamine doesn't prolong life at all. Yeah. It's really, as we keep saying, just a Band-Aid. Yeah. And you mentioned a good point. It, dopamine can control some of the symptoms, but it's mainly targeting the motor symptoms. There's no good drug for the non-motor symptoms that can be just as equally debilitating that we're talking about, like sleep cycle disturbances and mm -hmm. depression and cognitive decline. So I think that a good promise for looking at this inflammation in the brain is that maybe we can target the non-motor symptoms better. Yeah. You can't really ask a mouse if it's depressed. Yeah. So this is something they would really have to follow up in human studies. Okay. I think that about wraps up the paper. So because we have Jacob here, we want to ask him a few questions. The first question is, Jacob, what is your favorite part about doing science? So I think my favorite part about doing science um, is the like 0.01% of the time <laughs> when you guess something correctly. Um, it is pretty crazy how complex biology is, and it is very validating in those few moments that exist in a research career when you correctly uh, guess how something works mm -hmm. or you figure out how something works and for the first time ever, you're kind of the person who knows that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very rewarding and very exciting. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, research really is just, you're always kind of on the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. You're always trying to do something that no one else has done before. And that's not really true in the world of medicine. A lot of the times, you're treating patients that have really similar diseases to each other. The aspect of research I also like is like you were saying, when you're doing something new and you're, you realize that you're doing it for the first time. Totally. So Jacob, our second question for you is, what's your worst lab injury ever? So my worst lab injury ever is not particularly exciting. I was uh, cutting sections and my finger got caught on the blade oh. and there was a lot of blood. Oh my God. Um, my favorite lab injury ever though did, not, did not happen to me, happened to another graduate student in my lab. 
I was standing back to back with her and she took a step back holding a syringe of uh, virus that had the GFP green fluorescent protein in it and accidentally squirted it in her eye. And I've been begging her to let me do an eye exam so I can see if any of her cells actually now express this green fluorescent protein. But she adamantly refuses that that will never happen. It's best to not know. It's You don't want to know. Take a picture and put it on my Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> and then our final question is that if the three of us were to compete in a poll test a la the mouse <laughs> testing, which one of us would win? Definitely not Derek. Oh! Um, Derek's, Derek's core strength is not where it needs to be. Uh, non-existent, you mean? <laughs> Ellen is secretly pretty strong, and I think that she would beat us all. Yes, that's what I like to hear. Um, for the record, my vote is for Jacob, because he literally works out like 16 times a day. So, <laughs> sorry, Ellen. <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up. Yeah, I hope you guys like the image of um, all of us pole dancing. <laughs> Nice thing to end with. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jacob. Thank you guys for having me. 